We're on verse number one of Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter four, but it is good to see you. It's good to be back in church and and uh, praise the Lord. Uh, we love the fellowship of the uh, the saints. And um, all right, let me find Colossians here, chapter four, and I will be with you. Just a second here. There we go. Colossians 4 verse 1 says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in uh, heaven. And uh, (coughs) this is a continuation of the offices that we might hold. Uh, Back in chapter 3, he talked to the wives in verse 18, husbands in verse 19, children in verse 20, fathers in verse 21, servants in verse 22. And he talked about how in every case that if we will do what we are instructed, whatever our office may be, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. I'm back in verse 24 now of chapter number uh, 3. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respecter of persons. So that's where we concluded last time, was that we're all going to be judged someday for the good in our lives and for the evil. And we're all going to be rewarded for the good, and we're going to lose rewards for the evil. So find out what your role is, embrace that, and as I mentioned, uh, and, and live it out no matter what it's like for you, because there is a reward of inheritance for, for instance, the wife. Maybe she doesn't have a good husband, but if she's a good wife, she'll have a reward of inheritance in the next life. And the next life lasts for a long time, you know. Uh, It's forever. And uh, husbands and children and so on. Now he concludes with masters, and it starts in chapter 4, verse 1 tonight. Masters. Now that's the equivalent today Uh, of our employers. Uh, Of course, back then they had masters and servants, not slaves, but servants. And your master basically owned you in your employment, and the servants were the employees of, of, of the masters. So it's like today what we would call employers and employees. And we have an imperative... To the masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. That is written in the imperative, which means it is a commandment. It is a commandment that those, we would say today, who are employers, give to their servants that which is just uh, and equal. I don't know exactly what determines that, but any one of you that may be listening who is an employer... Uh, I believe God will bless your business if uh, you will take care of your employees and give them that which is just and, and uh, equal and, and be, be fair to them. I believe God will bless your business, uh, just like he blesses anybody who obeys. And your business might even grow and you can be an even greater blessing to your employees. And then it says at the end, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. 
So those that are employers, owners of businesses, should not really think that the buck stops with you. But remember, you have a master in heaven over your business. And remember, like it says at the top of your sheet there, that's the theme of the whole book. That One of the main themes of the whole book is that Christ is the head of all. He's the head of all. We saw that back in chapter number 1 and verse 18 when it said, and he is the head of the body, the church. We saw it in chapter 2 and verse number 10. And ye are complete in him, and he is the head of all principality and power. So he's not just the head of the church, he's the head of all governments, all principalities, all powers, even the evil ones. He rules over them, as we see, for instance, in the book of Job. And so he's not only the head of all in the church, and the head of all in government and, and uh, uh, spiritual warfare, but here he's the head, too, of businesses. Uh, he is the head of all. That's the underlying theme for the book of Colossians. It's, there's a great emphasis, as it says at the top of your notes, on, on Christ being God. He's deity. He's the Lord. But he's also the head of all. The head of all. So let's not walk out of church on Sunday and say, okay, now I go back to my secular job. No, it's a sacred job. God is the head of it. And uh, God is the head of the employer who's over you whether he or she knows it or not, but especially those of you that are believers in Christ, uh, don't walk out of here and say, okay, see you next week, God. No, no, you, you take Christ to your business. Amen. And you say, Lord, this is your business. You guide it and direct it, and he'll do a lot better job than you can. And then I'm not trying to uh, insult you or anything. But um, Christ is the head of all, and he's the head of everything. And he should be the head of every home, and, and uh, you know he's the head of every man, and uh, this is taught in the scriptures. So now there's an abrupt change of subject now from our offices to the subject of prayer, and he goes back to addressing the church at Colossae. He's never been there, but he says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now, continue means continue. He's not saying, get your prayer life started. These people were already men and women of prayer. And he's reminding them, just keep continuing. Continue in prayer. Continue in prayer. Now, there's got to be a starting point. I, I mean, I, I can remember a time in my life where I never prayed. And uh, then there was a day when I started praying. I started believing it by faith and all the things that God says about it. And I've never quit since. Every day, it's just a... Every day there's quiet time alone with God. In my life, I hope that's the way it is with yours. And we're supposed to continue in prayer. The word continue means never end. Similar to the words in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which say pray without ceasing. And uh, Luke wrote, and I think it's Luke 18.1, that men ought always to pray. And, 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 not, and not, not, I'm not quoting that right, sorry. But then it says this, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And so our prayer life ought to be always liberally seasoned with thanksgiving. Uh, we, we don't want to just go to God with a grocery list of prayer requests every week, and then as he fulfills that grocery list, give him the next grocery list. 
no, we need to have thanksgiving. I heard one preacher put it, he says, you know, it would, we would do well if we would praise the Lord as much after he answers a prayer as we had prayed before that he would answer the prayer. Now, that's some good living right there. And continue in the same with thanksgiving. I remember I, <coughs> I was over at a men's prayer meeting at Hilltop Baptist Church. We started one over there, and it's still going. Um, since 2011, every week. And I remember going there, and it was a good prayer meeting. It was a really good prayer meeting. I like that. And we got a good one started here now on Wednesday morning. So if you're not working Wednesday, I know most of you are working or in school or something, but if you're not, men and women, if you can come to the church every Wednesday or any Wednesday and pray, uh, God answers prayer. And uh, we had testimony meeting uh, whatever day I was here. I can't even remember now. Sunday night, you were out of town. We had a testimony meeting on Sunday night, and I counted three prayers that people stood up and gave testimony that were on the prayer list that we were praying for specifically that were answered uh, according to the will of God. So we need to be uh, uh, praying. But uh, I remember over there, and we, I, I'd say, now, the men, let's pray for an hour, and let's pray for five minutes each, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. You go around about three times. That makes for a great prayer meeting. Nobody hogs the prayer meeting or anything like that. It's really great. And one day I just had an experiment, and I counted. In one hour, the men had thanked the Lord 73 times for something uh, as they were praying to the Lord. Lord, just, I just want to thank you for saving me. And, to, and they would, they would and thank you for this, that, and the other and answers to prayer. That's, that's biblical that we should pray and it should be seasoned. Uh, and watch in the same with uh, thanksgiving, liberally seasoned with thanksgiving. And if you run out of things to pray about and your mind goes blank, just start thanking the Lord. Just start thanking. We've got to be thankful people. Gratitude is such a good medicine to our souls. I know some of you are going through hard times, but if you can focus on the good things and the great things that God has done for you and thank him for it. Now, prayer goes beyond ourselves. Look at verses 3 through 4. With all, praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he's saying, don't, don't just pray and continue to pray, but pray for us. And he's in prison. Okay, remember that. This is one of the four prison epistles. He's in prison. And he's still, the main thing on his mind here is that while he's in prison, God would open a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, if you remember what the mystery of Christ was, that was defined back in chapter 1 and verse number 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery that he's talking about here in chapter 4 and verse 3, the mystery of Christ, is just simply the gospel. It's the gospel. He says, would you please pray for us that a door of utterance would be opened 
that we may be able to speak the mystery of Christ, for which also I am in bonds or in prison, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And that's not just Paul, that's all of us. All of us ought to speak the mystery of Christ, and we ought to make this a prayer. Lord, open a door of utterance for me. Open a door of utterance for brother so-and-so at his place of work or whatever. Just, just open doors of utterance. And, uh, you know, when the Lord opens a door, it, it, it's, it can't be closed, but it might just open, be open for a short time. And how we see that in a church setting so often Whereas people who come maybe for the first time ever, and we think, what do we think? Well, this is a good church. They're going to come back next week. They don't. They hardly ever come back a second time. That's just a fact. I don't care if it's this church or the next one down the road or the next one. You ask any pastor if that's not true. And they'll all say the same thing. Yeah, they never came back. And once in a while, one comes back, and one comes the second time, the third, and it's, but it's very rare. It's very rare. And that's just the facts. I think, the, I think it was Barna who concluded about 95% of your first-time visitors never come back. And then they did research on churches that had a care ministry, and they said sometimes 10, 15, maybe 20% of those will come back a second time. And uh, if we could figure it out, we'd write books, sell millions of them. Every pastor on earth would buy one. And every pastor in the world is struggling in his mind saying, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with our church? It's like that everywhere. It's like that everywhere. So what I'm trying to say tonight is that the first time somebody comes, try to befriend them and try to share the gospel with them. I'm talking about the first time. Now, some people do that, but we need everybody. Everybody in this room needs to come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night as a minister and say, Lord, if you open a door of utterance for me, if I see somebody, I'm going to break away from my friends, I'm going to break away from my family. And I'm going to go and talk to them about the gospel. And you'll be able to lead people to Christ right inside of the church building. But we got to have that mentality that Paul has, where he says, pray for me that I may speak as I ought to speak, as I ought to speak. And church is a great place for soul winning. And I remember the guy out in uh, Kansas City, his name was Daniel, I forget his last name, but it was a large church, you know, one of those churches that ran several thousand people, and this was back in the 70s and 80s, but he would come with that attitude, and he led 500 people to Christ in 10 years inside of his church building, because every Sunday he came and said, I I'm going to break away from my friends, I'm not going to fellowship, uh, I can fellowship with them some other time. I'm going to break away from my family. I can see them another time. And if there's a lost person here, Lord, lead me to that person. And at a rate of one per week for 10 years, he led 500 people to Christ inside of the church building. Now, we don't have a church of thousands here, but we have visitors that come. And we need to be, and we, we can't think, Somebody else is going to talk to him, or maybe Pastor Cole or Pastor Barron will get through to him with the sermon. 
No, you can pick up on that right after we dismiss and confront somebody and say, hey, you know, the pastor was just talking about salvation or eternal life or going to heaven. He says, is that something that you uh, think about sometimes? Is it something you're sure about? Are you sure you got some doubts or anything? Could I just talk to you for a few minutes before you leave about maybe further explaining how? And they'll tell you yes or no. They'll tell you, but at least you tried. At least you tried. And I know we love fellowship. And, and uh, boy, I, you know, sometimes I think if everybody who whipped out their cell phones as soon as the service is over, got to check their whatever. I don't know what they're checking. But, but if they keep their cell phones away and look for somebody, boy, what a soul-winning church it would be. It would be a wonderful thing. It would be a wonderful thing. And uh, I'm not getting bogged down here. Pastor Seth makes great efforts to bring these turning point guys in, sometimes three, four, five, six guys every service. We all know how short of a time they're with us. If you haven't seen it by now, and then when they leave, some of them have good intentions, oh, we'll be back, but only a couple of them have ever come back for a visit or two or three or something. That's the facts, right? And it would be nice if... (coughs) Somebody say, hey, well, you know, yeah, I'm staying up at Turning Point. Well, glad you're here. I know you're here for a short time. You know, before you go back to your home, can I just share something with you? Somebody share with me one time? And Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? And Women can talk to men, too. I'd stay out here. But if you're a man, you're, there's a man or a woman, and there's a woman, maybe you can go in the back room or something. But this is what, even in prison, Paul is thinking about the gospel. And then he says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. That word without means outside. Outside the body of Christ. Outside the family of God. Walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? Uh, Job 28, verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord. It says we're supposed to walk in wisdom. We're supposed to walk in the fear of the Lord towards those that are without, those that aren't saved, the lost. Walk in wisdom. Walk in the fear of the Lord towards them. Jude said, another save with compassion, or another save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. The fear, you know, we ought to look at somebody maybe on a Sunday morning and say, Lord, I fear I may never see this soul again ever. And this may be the only time, and, 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 and all of us need to be activated to be soul winners, even in church or in prison. But then our speech, verse 5, so, so walk in wisdom, redeeming the trying, trying to save everybody you can in short time. But when you do speak to them, verse 6 says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Okay, you don't take some great meal Jen makes or something, take the salt shaker off and dump the whole thing on. You know, you just you leave the top on, you just kind of sprinkle it around. That just draws out the flavor. When we're talking to people, and, and this is in the context of the gospel, which began in verse 3, down through verse 6, let your speech be always with grace. Always with grace. Listen what it says here about Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 22. And all bear him witness 
and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. I mean, it was just one. I guess it wasn't normal. And pretty much in our world today in 2024, it's not normal for gracious words just to flow out of human beings' mouths. Boy, it's getting nasty out there. I can't, I can't even stand it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm kind of hibernating in retirement. Because the stuff there, the profanity now, and the nastiness now, and it must have been the same in Jesus' day. Because all of a sudden they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. You know, verse 6 says here that our speech be always with grace. Let's speak graciously to the lost. You know, don't go up to them and say, you're going to go to hell when you die, and you're going to burn forever like a human blowtorch or something. That's not going to, you know, they're going to say, well, let me hear what you have to say. No, they're not going to respond that way. But, you know, if we say something like, boy, can I just share with you something someone shared with me? It's the greatest thing I ever heard, and I needed it so much, and, boy, it helped me. You know, with, with some gracious words, gracious words. They say, no, I say, well, listen, the door's always open. You're welcome back here to our church anytime. We love you. If we can pray for you, anything, try to leave that door open. Now, the rest of the chapter abruptly turns again. And from verses 7 through the end of the chapter, <coughs> we have Paul... He does this often now. He's going to talk about ten different men who are a part of his life. Ten different men. Now listen, I went through all of Paul's epistles. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And then I included Hebrews. I don't know if he wrote Hebrews or not. But one time I wrote down the names of men that he mentioned, and I had 200 names. 200. A couple of them he had problems with. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. But, but most of those were positive experiences that showed us Paul could work with others. We need churches filled with men who are humble, who are flexible, who can work with others. Don't have to have it their way. Don't have to be like Diotrephes who love to have the preeminence in, in John's church. No, no. Most of these were just good men. And some of them, there's just a little tidbit here and a little tidbit there as we're going to see here. And we'll go through this. A little bit more quickly. Number one is Tychicus. He's mentioned in verse number seven. It says, And my, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I'm glad I did this study because sometimes you get these ideas like Paul was some loner out there, you know, just on his own, or John the Baptist was some loner. No, John the Baptist had all kinds of disciples. They were still around decades later after he died. John the Baptist worked with all kinds of men. Jesus had 80 men in like a, two years' time, 82 men. And he chose 12 out of those and ordained them that they should be with him and made them apostles. 
Jesus worked with men. John the Baptist worked with men. Um, the Apostle Paul worked with men. Uh, Peter mentions many other men in his couple epistles. And so it's not some badge of honor that says, well, I can't work with anybody. Nobody's right with God but me, you know, and get this Elijah syndrome. That's no badge of honor in the Christian faith. The badge of honor is how many people can I work with? Can I be humble enough and flexible enough to, to work with? And he mentions them, and so Tychicus is one. Now, Tychicus is Asian. We read that from Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, as he accompanied the Apostle Paul once on a missions trip to Macedonia and Greece, which are in Europe. And uh, so we, we praise the Lord uh, for that. And what a wonderful description, just these three things. It's, it's about all you know about Tychicus, except perhaps in the postscript in your Bible. Now, it's not in mine, but in some King James Bibles, there's a postscript at the end of verse 18. Any of you have it? What does the postscript say? Pastor, can you read it? Okay, written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus. So he's the human penman. He's the human penman, and we'll see at the end of the book why I believe Paul had eye problems and, and, and things. He, he was very su- a suffering man, physically. Uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit would tell him, and then he would tell uh, Tyke, I guess, what to write down. And God used that method. I mean, Jesus told an angel what to tell John one time, and John wrote it down in the Isle of Patmos by the Holy Spirit's help. So, so uh, that's, that was just God's method. He's called here a beloved brother. Wouldn't that be nice if that's how we were remembered? Boy, he was a beloved brother. Number two, a faithful minister. A faithful minister. Ministers need to be faithful. He, he seemed to have some type of an office, or would end up with some type of an office, probably in the church at Colossae. Uh, probably he was maybe one of the, like a, a, a assistant pastor, co-pastor or something with Epaphras. And maybe he came to the prison in Rome to see Epaphras, who was in prison with Paul, and to take this letter back to the church at Colossae, where he was ministering. And then he was a fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 8, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. And so he's on a mission uh, to see how the church is doing. In the absence of its leadership, know their state, and to comfort their hearts is, we've never faced this, but can you imagine if we were in a church where our pastor was arrested and put into prison? I hope we, like Peter's church, that prayer would be made of the church for him without ceasing, as it talks about in the book of Acts. But... Uh, not everybody would be comfortable, and so he was, he was going to come, and Tychicus was going to say, hey, it's all right, Paul's okay, Epaphras is okay. And uh, <clears throat> so Tychicus had a very important role in the writing of this book at Colossae and in ministering to the church at uh, Colossae. Verse number 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, 
they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Okay, so Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, it, says, it describes him here in verse 9, a faithful and beloved brother, but he wasn't always like that. Maybe some of you have read the testimony of Onesimus in the book of Philemon, that short book. Philemon owned Onesimus. Onesimus ripped him off. He was a thief. That's what Onesimus was. In Philemon, read it. When you get home, it's real short. He flees from Colossae, away from his owner, Philemon, ends up somehow in Rome, 800 miles away, somehow crosses paths with Paul. I don't know how. Paul leads him to Christ. And he goes from being a, a deceptive, deceitful thief to being described here by Paul, a faithful and beloved brother, which is one of you. And remember, the book of Philemon, Paul actually wrote to Philemon and said, look, this guy's changed. He's saved. The Lord has changed him. He's going to come back and be your servant, but much more now as a brother. All right? And by the way, Philemon, Paul said, don't, don't forget that you owe yourself to me, too. I led you to Christ. Now I've led this, this thief, this servant Onesimus, to Christ. Now I'm sending him back to you because that's the right thing to do. But you receive him now as a brother. It's a beautiful story in the book of Philemon, if you read. Just beautiful of the glorious new birth, <clears throat> the new creation we are in Christ. Keep your place here. Turn back to Proverbs 29 and verse 13. Proverbs 29 and verse 13. And it says this, The poor and the deceitful man meet together. The Lord lighteneth both their eyes. See the power of the local church. The power of fellowship. The poor and the deceitful man meet together. So let's not give up on those that may have had really checkered pasts. God can turn them into honest men. What's the first book of the, of the New Testament? Anybody know the first book of the New Testament? Brent? Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, all right. Got some scholars here tonight. Our minds are numb or something. Matthew. What was Matthew before he got saved? A tax collector, a publican. You know what the Bible says about them. I mean, they, a publican was equated with a sinner. And uh, some history has it that publicans were so dishonest, so deceitful, their testimony was not allowed in court. Well, the Lord used him as the first testimony of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Why? The poor and deceitful man meet together. The Lord lighteneth both their eyes. The Lord has the power to transform a deceitful man into an honest man. Into an honest man. All the things that God can do if we'll just get people to Christ. And don't look at somebody and say, well, this guy is a, you know, a deceitful con artist. And, and uh, well... The last I knew, Jacob was that way. 
And God changed his name into Israel. Israel. And so let's, let's believe in the Lord. Let's believe in the power of the Lord to save and change people's lives. So there's Onesimus. Aristarchus is next. My fellow prisoner saluteth you. Aristarchus. Well, Aristarchus is also mentioned um, as being arrested once earlier in Ephesus. So this is his second time he's now in prison. When he had accompanied Paul in Acts 19.29 on a journey with Tychicus. Now this guy Aristarchus, we find uh, mentioned in the scriptures, was from Asia. I'm sorry, he was from Europe. And uh, he was a European. And so if you go back to that missions, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, um, missions trip, Paul was a Jew, Tychicus was an Asian, Aristarchus was a European. Because when you get saved, that stuff means nothing. It means nothing. And we were taught that earlier Last time in chapter 3 and verse 11, where it says, Where there is neither (coughs) Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, that stuff, bigotry, prejudice, um, that goes out of the believer when they're truly converted to Christ. And that means nothing. It means nothing. We've got the Scythian there. That's the Russian. Chapter 3, verse 11. That's the Russian. It means nothing to Christ. He'll save Russians, and he'll love them just as much as he'll save someone in America and love them. So I just thought that was a neat observation, that those three would serve the Lord together, an Asian, a European, and a Jew, on a great missions trip, and be incarcerated together. And that just impresses me. I love these little human insights. Sometimes you go through these lists and you have a bunch of guys. No, no, there's some really human stuff in the Bible that kind of relates to us. And I hope when you get saved, all that prejudice and bigotry just goes out. You say, I don't care who a person is, what skin color they're from, what part of the world they're from. If they're in Christ, man, they are my brother in the Lord, my sister in Christ. Hallelujah. And hallelujah. Amen. Next one we have is Marcus. Marcus is pretty famous. Um, In verse 10, and Marcus, also known as Mark, also known as John Mark. Now remember, on his first missions trip, he was a quitter. Acts 13. He went out with Paul and Barnabas on the first missions trip we ever know that was really, you know, approved by a church and by the Holy Ghost. And they took John Mark with them, who was Barnabas's nephew. And they got out there and things got hot and he quit and ran back to mom, literally ran back to mom's house. Mary, her name was. And then in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are ready to go out again. And Barnabas says, well, let's get John Mark. And Paul said, I don't want him. He's a quitter. He didn't say that. I'm just making that up. But they started fighting with each other so much. Paul, literally, the Bible says Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, the son of consolation. 
It says their contention was so sharp over John Mark that they split up. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark. They went their separate ways. Paul, John Mark. So Paul had nothing to do with John Mark. But now he's speaking so highly of him. Praise the Lord for those that get another chance. And so, just like the deceitful man earlier, if we know somebody in the ministry who's quit, all right, listen, I just heard a story about a, a man we used to support 20, 25 years ago, came, presented his work, our church got behind him, we started giving him money, and I think in four months he quit. And it, it was like, you know, it, it was kind of a, just a bad experience. Because we had just convinced the church, let's support this guy. God's hands on this guy. He's going to do a work for God, and he quit in four months. Well, now I learned 25 later, years later, he's in the ministry. He's a pastor. He's doing well in the church. Amen? God does not quit on the people we quit on. Amen. You know, we say things like, well, he probably wasn't even saved. No, no. God knows that stuff. Amen. And we might quit on somebody, but God doesn't. And uh, Marcus is a, a, a case like that. And so he becomes a great missionary. And here he's now a blessing to Paul. Whereas Paul wanted nothing to do with him earlier. He said, And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And that's something, receive him. Here Paul had rejected him himself. Now Paul is saying, receive him. He's a good man. He's a good man. And by the way, he goes on to write the second gospel. Matthew, he's a publican. Mark, he was a quitter, but he got, got back with it. He writes the second gospel. Now we got, <clears throat> next name is Jesus. Verse 11, which is the New Testament form of the Old Testament Joshua, as you know, which is called justice. So, who are of the circumcision? So here's a Jew. These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Now, what that means is that I believe it means that during this time of real hardship, except for his fellow prisoners, these were the only guys that really stuck by Paul. Mark, verse 10, and Jesus, or justice, verse number 11. And boy, sometimes... Hmm, be careful about this, but sometimes I've seen a pastor maybe have a difficulty or fall, and a whole bunch of pastors just desert him. Just, just start talking about just desert him. Very rare. I mean, pastors are mostly really good people, but once in a while you see, see some guy stuck alone on an island because of something he did or said or, or whatever. And, and uh, I could tell some stories there, but I won't. But it's rare. Most pastors really stick together and support each other. But, you know, when Jesus was betrayed one night, it says all of his disciples forsook him and fled. Everyone. But in Paul's case, Mark and Justice stuck with him through the whole thing until he was uh, released. So let's thank the Lord tonight for people like justice and I want to encourage you if you see everybody bailing out on somebody what's the old saying your friends rush in when everyone else rushes out and then you'll find out who your real friends are when you when you're down 
And now we got Epaphras. We could review chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. I believe that Epaphras was a minister in the church at Colossae. It tells us that. He was a prison prayer warrior. In fact, I think most of the knowledge Paul got to write to the Colossians, he got from hearing Epaphras pray for this church because Paul had never been there. He wanted everyone to be introduced to the will of God and prayed for everybody there in the church at Colossae to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So he's not wasting his time in prison feeling sorry for himself. He realizes he can have a monumental ministry, a mountain-moving ministry, from prison. It doesn't matter where you or I pray. It can be profoundly effective. James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Um, Verse 13, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are at Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. So, I was reading Dr. David Sorensen on this. Dr. David Sorensen believed that when you add this verse to verse um, number 16, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that they likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. You have three towns here mentioned, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Now, if you look on a map and study your geography, you will see that these exist in the form of a triangle, and not one of them is even 12 miles apart. Colossae and Laodicea were nine miles apart. These were very close local churches. This is almost the exact equivalent as our church, the Hilltop Baptist Church, and the Old Time Baptist Church in geography. That's how close they were. So again, we get a little insight into church planting in Asia. And uh, Dr. Sorensen really believed that Epaphras was a circuit-riding preacher, a circuit-riding pastor, or what we might call a pastor at large. And uh, when I saw that, I said, wow, look at that. Uh, Because uh, I try to do the same things myself there, but uh, I, I think we have a biblical example in Epaphras. And so they're sending this letter to Colossae, but then they're saying, now make sure somebody takes it over to Laodicea so they can read it, and make sure someone takes it over to Hierapolis uh, so they can read it uh, too. And so he's concerned for all of those churches. And now verse 14, we have Luke. Of course, he's the writer of the book of Luke. And he was a physician, probably a Gentile personal friend and physician of Paul who had many infirmities, injuries, beatings, etc. They're actually cataloged for us. We won't read it, though. And, uh, boy, Paul, Paul needed a personal physician. Then there's Demas, even though he's spoken highly of here in verse 14, sadly, uh, the last word on him was in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 which says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And uh, what a sad ending there. Nymphus, verse 15, this is the only mention of his name in the Bible, but what a blessing he is. He had a house big enough to host a church, and that would be the church at Laodicea. 
And it was probably a very good church at this time that prospered so mightily that 30 years later, we read the sad commentary of this church at Laodicea spoken by Jesus in one of the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. But Nymphus uh, had a church in his house, the one in Laodicea. Now, verse 16 says, uh, we went through that, make sure this epistle's read everywhere. Now we come up to the last one, and that's Archippus, in verse 17, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. I don't know if this is an admonition or a rebuke. But listen, men, if you receive a ministry from the Lord, you fulfill it. Because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He did not make a mistake when he called you. And as it says in Galatians 6, 4, let every man prove his own work. Um, if you're called, go ahead and announce it, but then go and prove it. Then go and prove it, and don't quit. And so maybe he just needed an admonition or an encouragement. Uh, and, and the words are, look, the Lord has put you in the ministry, Archippus. You have received this ministry from the Lord. Make sure you fulfill it. Make sure you fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. And we are supposed to remember those in bondage. Hebrews 13.3 is bound with them. I heard a story about a, a family in North Korea a couple months ago that got caught with a Bible. And they put the whole family in church, haven't heard, put the whole family in prison, North Korea, including their baby, and haven't heard from them since. I try to pray for them constantly. And if you hear stories like that, maybe nobody else does, you pray for those people constantly. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for this overview of the book of Colossians. What a wonderful book. And we just pray that thy Holy Spirit would help some things to stick with us and change us. Uh, to be more like Thee, Lord, and more like these good examples that we've read. <clears throat> and Lord, we pray for Your blessing now as we go home, for safety over these next few days. Just keep our church together, and, and uh, through these hard times we have every winter. Uh, but Lord, again, thank You for the cold and the message it sends from Your Word. Bless our dismissal now, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.